Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. All right, so we are back again for another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and here with me is Ashley Wakefield. Hello. Hey, Ashley. We are in the uh, book of Isaiah, and we've been going chapter by chapter through the book of Isaiah, and we've hit a pretty long chapter this week. This is a really fun chapter to kind of explore. Um, It's definitely one that, because it's so long, uh, might take a couple listens through through the uh, um, scripture reading portion of this episode. So feel free to go back and, you know, listen to it as many times as you need to. I know some people also have a hard time just with listening to it audio-wise. So uh, if you have a Bible handy, this is a great one to pull out your Bible and just kind of read along with as well. Um, If you are not doing some type of driving commute or something like that, please don't pull out your Bible if you're driving. But yeah, um, we are uh, working through um, these chapters. And right now, this is a story section of Isaiah. We are um, looking at the story of Hezekiah and his um, really impossible situation where the kingdom of Assyria has decided to come and wipe out um, Jerusalem. And so he has pulled all of his people within the city. Um, They are in a situation where... The Assyrian um, army is pretty much on their front doorstep and has probably already gotten rid of most of their food that's been on the farms on the outlying regions of the city and is threatening to um, lay siege to the city. And uh, this last chapter that we looked at, we saw uh, the leader of this army uh, really derisively condemning both Hezekiah and the god that Hezekiah worships, um, which... uh, is very arrogant of him to do. And so the context of this chapter is a response that Hezekiah and his people have to this arrogant um, claims that this uh, commander makes. And so we're going to see a lot of um, what God thinks about Assyria and his own um, arrogance and how God's going to respond to that arrogance. Um, We're going to see how Hezekiah responds. We're going to see even um, Isaiah himself gets uh, gets mentioned as a character in this as opposed to just uh, reading all these different poetry sections without really having um, his own um, actions be displayed. So this is really cool. We get to see a lot of different things. And uh, one of the most Uh, beautiful things in this entire passage is really just the heart of Hezekiah in praying to God. I really love his prayer, and you could honestly take this prayer as sort of a model for how we're to pray in um, dire situations like this. I think it's one of the best examples in scripture we have of how uh, we are to respond when things are just completely out of our control and we have no way of knowing uh, how to 
survive even through the next coming days and weeks. And I find his response so uh, enlightening a lot because I think in this situation, most people would be stressed and completely at their wit's end. And it doesn't seem like he's acting that way. It seems as if he is um, uh, relying and trusting on God in full 100%. And I think that that's something really cool to this story in general. And it's definitely the highlight of the chapter. Something literary... eh. Something literally, that's a really hard word to say, about this chapter is that usually the middle sections of a chapter are the most important sections of a chapter. Um, Generally, there'll be a beginning section, which is like an A section, and then the middle section will be a B section, and then the uh, ending will be uh, another a section and we can definitely see that here where um, the A section is kind of um, this point of uh, 30 uh, chapters of in chapter 37 it's verses 1 through verses 20 and then from verses 21 through scrolling down here uh, through 35 actually so quite a bit um, is all poetry and then we go back to narrative in uh, verses 36 down to the end and so the way that this chapter is arranged um, the middle section in this poetry section is the uh, most important section of this chapter and uh, that makes sense because when you realize what the poetry is it's God actually speaking through Isaiah to Hezekiah so it's God's words and that's why it's so important so uh, yeah just to keep you uh, in the loop as far as what's being done in the actual text itself but yeah let's go ahead and jump uh, uh, jump into this Ashley did you have any uh, other closing thoughts before we jump in no that's it all right let's do this When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, This is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore pray for the remnant that still survives. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. Now Sennacherib received a report that Tirhaka, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word, Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them, the gods of Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden, who were in Tel Asar? Where is the king of Hamath, or the king of Arpad? Where are the kings of Lair, Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? 
Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hands, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter Zion despises and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel? By your messengers you have ridiculed the Lord. And you have said, With many chariots I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of the Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its junipers. I have reached its remotest heights, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass, that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. There, people drained of power are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you are, and when you come and go, and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me, and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. This will be the sign for you, Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. Once more a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city, or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield, or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend the city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in a Syrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nishrak, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Eshahadon, his son, succeeded him as king.
All right, so we are looking at this rather long passage, and we start out with Hezekiah hearing the words that this commander spoke, and uh, he walks into the temple of the Lord. This is a theme that doesn't get brought up a lot in Scripture that I want to talk about just briefly, is in their uh, setting, um, they didn't just pray anywhere, and they didn't just uh, worship anywhere. Um, They had very specific worship and prayer Um, rules where they would uh, go up and worship and pray in the temple of the Lord. And the temple of the Lord was like the one spot that they could really commune with God. It's just something that we don't really think about today because we can do that anywhere. And uh, and actually, the New Testament makes a big deal about how um, the temple uh, curtain was ripped in two when Jesus uh, was killed. And that is kind of a symbol of how um, we can worship anywhere now. But in their time and day, they really were only able to worship in one place and pray in one place. And, um, you know, you see examples of this um, changing as time goes on, um, but the most powerful and the most uh, close they could be to God was actually very spatial um, and was um, all in the temple of God. And so we kind of see this working here in this first verse as he goes into the temple. And David does this all the time too. As a matter of fact, you can kind of trace how good kings are by how frequently they visit the temple throughout the stories of the Bible. And so you can kind of see just kind of based off of their actions a little bit how much they relied on God and how much they didn't. Um, But yeah, so he sends Eliakim and Shebna and all the um, priests as well. They're all wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth was a uh, way of expressing grief in that time period um, to the prophet Isaiah, who has been telling us these stories and poetry for the last 37 chapters now. And um, they go to him and uh, Hezekiah is really in uh, disgrace and um, uh, distress and disgrace. Ooh, that's got those two mixed up. But yeah, he goes to them in this kind of disgrace. And when the children come to the moment of birth, there is no strength to deliver them. Um, It seems as if all things are um, just not going well. And um, they're hoping that maybe God will give uh, some type of answer to um, the situation and it's kind of their last ditch effort you can kind of see it's like the last thing that they have left to do and in particular I want to focus on the ending of verse 4 where it says um, they prayed for the remnant that still survives Uh, I've mentioned it before but the remnant is kind of like a big theme in the entire book of Isaiah. Um, The idea of there's always this small portion of people that still follow after God, um, still worship him, even in the middle of a people that's not worshiping God, there's always this remnant of people that is worshiping God. And in this case, we see the remnant get um, uh, kind of represented as the entirety of uh, uh, Judah, which is really interesting. Uh, And I bet there's a bit of subtext here of the fact that um, Israel, the 10 northern tribes, got conquered by Assyria. And so, for in their mind, Jerusalem and Judah is like the last remnant of Israel in general because they're the last remaining tribe. So, they're kind of the remnant of that. But there is kind of this also this idea that's been going in Isaiah through all these different chapters of um, there also being an even smaller remnant within Judah that is like worshiping God while the rest of the people are not. Um, And we can see that Hezekiah is one of those remnant people because he's worshiping God. And um, he, uh, if you look at his actions compared to a lot of the other kings of this time period, you can definitely see that he stands out as kind of uh, different than the rest of them. So yeah, we definitely have some of the beginnings of that. Yeah, I like the image of different people 
Oh, well, they're all in the same nation, obviously, but you have these people with different positions that are coming together to focus on this problem. And I kind of like the unity of that. Um, even with the King Hezekiah going, sending people to get a word from a prophet, um, it kind of reminds me of how I feel like church should work about different people in different positions working together to solve something. And even considering the fact that prophets were also rising up a lot during this time where kings were also very prominent to sort of keep a sort of checks and balances about what the king was doing because he was giving the king um, what the word of the Lord was, whether he was doing something right or doing something wrong or giving him advice or comfort um, like in this chapter. And I kind of like that it's sort of like even the leadership um, had to be held accountable. So I guess I kind of liked that image of everybody working together and the king having to wait to receive a word from a prophet. So Yeah, no, no, it is definitely a point of truth that uh, when bad things happen, it tends to unite people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's kind of sad to say that, but yeah, when, uh, when you're in this kind of situation, a lot of the things that divided people that are kind of small and insignificant sort of go away and people really begin to like focus on what really matters and um, be usually see that there's strength in numbers and really are trying to work together for once. Um, so we kind of have this section where they come to Isaiah, um, they talk to him, uh, and uh, Isaiah gets to give one message back to Hezekiah, um, which is don't be afraid of these underlings and these people and uh, uh, I'm going to basically cut down um, the king and kill him with the sword, um, which is an interesting prophecy that gets uh, fulfilled at the very end of this chapter. And then uh, uh, when the apparently, and this is kind of um, clued in through the subtext of this beginning part, apparently they decide to tell the field commander um, uh, that this is probably going to happen uh, because the next verse is when the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lucky, she withdrew and found the king fighting in Libna, which is kind of just a little uh, weird verse that's kind of dropped in there because we have Isaiah talking in the beginning and then all of a sudden it, we're back into the field commander's perspective. Um, but I think what's going on here is this is the author kind of cluing you in that like, hey, the king's already leaving back to his homeland, so expect him to die pretty soon. (laughs) And uh, so we have this kind of break here where that happens, and then Sennacherib receives a report from the king of Cush, and we get to see a little bit more of just how things are winding up for Assyria and how things aren't going nearly as uh, ne- nearly according to plan uh, as they wanted them to. And they're distracted by this king of Cush in this area who's marching out to fight against him. Uh, when he hears this, he, uh, he sends uh, messages to Hezekiah really just to be a bully because he knows he's got to leave and go fight the king of Cush. But he's like, don't think that this is like your freedom because I'm going to come back and I'm going to wipe you out. And it's kind of this like this moment of like, I hate that I have to leave, but I'm going to get the last word in <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. It's really, really a slimy way to handle it. It, but uh, he says to the king of Hezekiah, uh, don't let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be get, uh, given into the hands of Assyria. Kind of reiterates what he said in the last chapter about how he's all that and how he's amazing and how he's destroyed all these different gods from all these different cities. And uh, why would the God of the Israelites be any different than any of these other gods in this area? Um, because he is basically slaughtered all of their kings and all of their cities and stuff like that and destroyed all their gods so why would the god of yahweh be any different and that's kind of the theme of this chapter is is 
is Israel's God different than all the rest of these gods? And the answer that Isaiah gives and Hezekiah gives is a resounding yes. And that's kind of what we're kind of focusing on a lot with these different names of kings and their gods and things like that is um, just kind of this uh, context of, uh, there's almost a subtext here too of like Israel kind of saying to these other nations that were conquered, the reason you were conquered is because you were worshiping false gods, not because Assyria is powerful and all that and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's interesting how, you know, in this chapter, you know, God is using Egypt to come against Assyria and then in the, in the previous chapters in Isaiah, like in Isaiah 20, he was doing the opposite, using Assyria to come against Egypt. And it kind of, it's interesting to see how God is using these different nations, like of Israel or or Judah or Assyria and Egypt to sort of come against one another. Like it's sort of like, they just sort of play into his hand, whether they realize it or not. And so it's like he uses one nation to punish another and then turns around and uses that same nation to do the same thing that the right. original nation used to dish mm-hmm. out that punishment. And it's sort of like they're just like little like I know it sounds negative to say this, but they're just like pawns in the will of God. So it's like, you know, they're he's using them to complete his own will. So. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, As, especially when. Uh, uh, the king of Assyria is kind of claiming that he's not a pawn at all, but that he is like doing things and like is so powerful and all that. And it's kind of funny to think about it from that perspective, just because of what, how, how high his boasts are. Um, but yeah, so we have that break and that kind of story explanation of things. And then we have a return again to Isaiah prophesying um, to Hezekiah and it's another message. And like I said, the, the, why there's two messages is because this middle section is really the important section of this entire story. Uh, and this is kind of the focus of the words of the Lord concerning this entire story that we're going to hear. Um, and so we get this uh, poetry section again. Ashley, I know you said you were looking forward to a story section, but we still have this one poetry here. But um, yeah, so this poetry kind of works um, through uh, just how God feels about Assyria now. Um, and it's kind of interesting because you know in chapters before uh god has been pretty derisive toward zion and been use saying that assyria is actually like his tool that he's going to use to punish zion and jerusalem and here we have the switch where because hezekiah um prays to god and asks for help and things um we have this kind of switch oh and i also skipped over the prayer part of hezekiah so i'll talk about that real quick too um but in verse 14 we have this uh, letter that um, uh, Hezekiah receives from um, these messengers of Assyria. And so he takes that letter into the temple of the Lord and spreads it out before the Lord. And he prays this beautiful prayer that I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode where um, he sees God as being enthroned on a throne on high and him being uh, God over all the kingdoms of the earth, hint, hint, wink, wink, including Assyria. And uh, he gives this beautiful idea of like making the heavens and the earth and how he's kind of Lord over both the land and the sky, which is kind of a callback to Genesis one and his creation of both. Um, And he tells God like, Hey, give ear Lord. And, here, open your eyes, which is kind of funny because that's something that God has told the people of Israel to do a lot of the times when he's trying to tell them what to do. And so it's kind of this interesting reversal of Hezekiah telling God the same thing back to him. And uh, he calls him to see and listen to all the words of this arrogant king of Assyria that is ridiculing him. Uh, And really is kind of an appeal to God's power and pride even. Uh, It's sort of like, look, did you hear what he said? Like, if you don't do anything, like, 
that's like pretty derisive to your name and i feel like you need to do something to defend your own name and it's kind of that's kind of like his persuasion tactic here is uh you need to do this because he's deriding your name so much um and he does say which is interesting in verse 18 it is true that the assyrian kings have laid waste to peoples and lands mm-hmm. um they have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them but he gives this little uh ending that they weren't actually gods at all but just wood and stone fashioned by human hands and his kind of second appeal is that um if you want to distinguish yourself from those gods then deliver us mm-hmm. you know um so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know uh, you, Lord, are the only God. And it's sort of an appeal to him be standing out among all the rest of the gods, which is a really, really clever way to pitch this prayer. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a king that knows who God is and knows what's really important to God and um, knows how to present what he needs done in the best way possible. Um, to get God to respond. And I think this is really cool. Yeah, um, and I find that reassuring, like the idea that even though he's coming against the nation um, of Israel, even though he's coming against them, um, it's like he's not just insulting, you know, he's not just insulting the people of God, but he's insulting God himself. And I kind of like the idea that God protecting those people is also protecting his name, which is reassuring to me because it's sort of like, you know, as as believers, it's sort of like this idea that, you don't ever face any battle alone. Like your God is always on your side. So whatever may be coming against you is not just coming against you, but coming against the God that you serve. So it's sort of like, because of that, you already have victory, whatever it is that you're going through. So it's sort of like looking at it from that perspective, that it's not just my battle to fight. It's the idea that I have like the Lord of hosts on my side, like behind me, you know, not just wanting to defend me, but also making sure that he's protecting his name in the process. So Yeah, yeah. And I think that, like, as we continue through um, this section, we get to see a lot of just how much the heart of God even is uh, just really broken over um, – uh, Israel's situation here, but also really mad at um, Assyria for being so derisive in this way. Um, and what I love is the opening of this poetry section I was talking about earlier starts with um, Virgin daughter Zion despises and mocks you. Virgin Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. And so it's almost this like boasting challenge back to Assyria that like um, the daughter of Jerusalem is now going to like be derisive towards you. Yeah, and and like, I was really interested in that phrase virgin daughter Zion because yeah. he actually uses that phrase not just um, for Judah or for his own people. He uses it like for Babylon in another chapter. Um, he uses it for Sidon in another chapter. He uses it for Egypt in another chapter. Oh, interesting. And so it was sort of I was looking that up in a commentary and I think one of the commentators said something interesting about like um, you know, related to what's going on in this chapter specifically, um, it's the idea that Hezekiah is being told that Assyria won't be able to even come into the land. They're not going to be able to approach it. They're not going to be able to shoot an arrow into it. So they're not going to be able to invade it, which is basically sort of symbolically keeping them virginal. And there hmm. were in those other references where he's basically saying something negative to them being a virgin daughter, sort of like you know, you're, you're a virgin daughter, but you're basically being ravished by these other nations. Mm. And so it was sort of like this idea that the reason that they're mocking you is because they're going to, they're not going to be able to be ravished by this other nation that's coming to them because they won't be able to even step into the land that they're in, if that makes sense. That so, makes yeah. a lot of sense that there's this kind of uh, uh, like safety purity that's kind of implied 
of the city that won't happen. I do think that a bit of that too is probably the theme of um, their all the way back in Isaiah 9, 7, 7, in Isaiah 7. Man, it's been a while. Uh, all the way back in Isaiah 7, uh, it says that the virgin daughter will be with with child and be <laughs> and have a son, you know? Mm-hmm. And we know that's kind of like fulfilled in the New Testament. But I do think there is kind of a theme in Isaiah overall of a virgin daughter being um, sort of a miracle woman right like a woman that uh, has god's blessings bestowed upon her that um is beautiful and to be cherished and miraculous things happen out of her and so i think that there is a sense in which like calling zion virgin daughter to zion is sort of saying this is a city of miracles you know like Mm -hmm. this is a city of of power and um things that uh normally would not happen will happen here so i think there's a little bit of that subtext theme as well going on here uh as well but i i I love your point there i think that's true too um we keep moving on into um just kind of how he's like talking about how much they're ridiculing blaspheming um uh, the holy one of god which is very obvious from the uh, chapter before and so it's kind of god's way of saying oh you've done done it now man <laughs> and uh so they continue on um how, with just how uh that's not okay to do not okay to uh, disgrace his name and uh he talks about how um he's like ascended the heights of the mountains um how he's like boasted about the facts that he's like over lebanon and all this different stuff and cut down all the trees um and how he's dug wells and all this stuff and he basically repeats back a lot of the boasts that this king of assyria has made to god about who he is and uh God then kind of slaps him in uh, verse 26 with, have you not heard like long ago, I planned for you to do that long ago. All of this was like in my plans and you're really just a pawn like you were saying earlier, Ashley. And um, the people drained of power are dismayed and put to shame. Um, They're like plants in the wheel, like tender green shoots, scorched. Um, And in very much God fashion, he basically kind of dismantles his entire boasting in a couple of quick poetry lines. And uh, after that, um, uh, he even goes one step further to say, but I know where you are and where you come and where you go and how you rage against me, which is kind of like, I know where you live, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of funny. And uh, he says, because you rage against me and because of your insolence has reached my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and uh, my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way you came. So it's basically like, I'm just going to make you a slave of mine. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting that he said that because that was like one of the tactics that the Assyrians would use against people when they would conquer them. They would put hooks in their nose yeah. and make them walk along. So it's sort of like God is saying the thing that you did to other nations to conquer them is the same thing that I'm going to do to you to conquer you. So Yeah, well, and that's been a theme of every punishment to another nation. God generally punishes them with the thing that they're like the best at that they've been doing to other nations mm-hmm. and stuff. So yeah, uh, that's really cool. I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, uh, so we have at the verse 30, we have um, him shifting who he's talking to. And this specific la- last little quatrain of or uh, little bits of stanza here are addressed to Hezekiah. And um, he tells Hezekiah, but you, um, you will eat what grows by itself, which is really interesting because they destroyed everything that was farmed um, naturally, right? Like all the farmers and stuff, the the army probably destroyed all mm-hmm. that. So in this year, Hezekiah is going to have to eat what just grows by itself just around the 
naturally and what i think is so cool about that is there's going to be enough for everybody just naturally on the earth and then the second year is what springs from that so it'll grow even more so two years they're going to um eat and be healthy based off of just the wild vegetation that grows and then in the third year they will actually sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit so it's a really cool way of like um like uh, putting aside the worry of whether or not they're going to have food or not and saying, look, the ground's going to give you enough for the next two years. Don't worry about it. And by the third year, you'll be able to start farming again, which is really cool. And uh, just a great way to kind of conclude that fear that they had in their minds about what was going to happen. And I love how it says the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And it's like an an attribute of God as being like personified as accomplishing that thing. And I know that the zeal of God can be looked at in, you know, different ways, like jealousy of the Lord, like if he's a husband and he's viewing, you know, his nation as like his bride or, mm. you know, it kind of reminds me of like the zeal was it Eleazar who walked into the temple and killed um, who killed the, the two people who were like basically fornicating at the temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. that was interesting. Yeah, that's and, in uh, Leviticus. No, it's in Numbers, I think. Yeah. Um, and I just find that so like interesting that like zeal is usually related to like a form of jealousy like some type of jealousy that incites rage and it's like the idea that you know what is God jealous for when you think about that and I guess when, based on what we were reading it sort of reminds me of how he's he's jealous of the the glory that Assyria is trying to steal from him basically like, this is my glory and you're trying to pretend as if this is something that belongs to you and he's trying to take back what belongs to him so yeah yeah that's a really interesting word it oftentimes can get translated as like ardor Mm -hmm. or like intense passion or strength or like you said jealousy um and i i I think this is kind of uh very much a kind of call to uh the fact that like israel is mine and i will always be more partial to israel than any other nation and so i think it's kind of implying that like my ardor and zeal for the nation of Israel, which is way more intense than any other nation around here, will accomplish this and make sure that you're taken care of, which is good. Just kind of really endearing thought to me. It's sort of like an intense, like, um, situation where he's just very protective and, uh, kind of like a mother hen over. It's like, babies or whatever and oh, yeah. how like uh possessive that mother hen always is and it just it's very uh, very much a uh, endearing quality to me at least mm-hmm. um but we do have even the remnant kind of come out too here in these last in verses 31 and 32 uh, where it kind of focuses on the remnant again and um how the remnant of the kingdom of judah will take root and bear fruit um and it's sort of this eventual promise of the fact that um, there's always a remnant again like i was saying earlier in the story And then finally, we have this last little section here where he returns again with a small little prophecy again to the king of Assyria. And like you were saying earlier, he won't enter the city, won't shoot an arrow in here. um, He won't even be able to build a siege ramp against it. um, And he will return and God will defend the city and save it for the sake of of his own name, which it's interesting that he says that he's not going to do it because of Hezekiah or the people that are in the city right now. He says he's going to do it for two reasons for his own sake, because um, the king of Assyria was bad mouthing God so much. And then for the sake of David, my servant, um, because David um, was such a man after his own heart. And um, he promised David that he would make sure that a king was always on the throne of Jerusalem forever and ever. And so for those two, 
two reasons is why he's going to defend the city and save it. So, yeah. And I think it's amazing that even David's obedience, even in the midst of the mistakes that he made, like his obedience and faithfulness to God is like benefiting the nation of Israel generations later. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, no. It, and well, and, and part of that's just you can read the heart of David in the Psalms and you mm-hmm. can see how close he was to God, even though despite his mistakes. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that some of some of the reason that that is carried on so far is because of some of those Psalms that he wrote to God. Um, and you can kind of, it's a, it's an interesting way to read the Psalms to imagine someone with that type of mindset and uh, reading those Psalms in that way. But um, yeah, we, then we have this little ending story section again. We get rid of the poetry and we're finally back into uh, um, this section of prose. And from verses 36 through 38, we see the conclusion of how God's going to deal with the people of Assyria. And uh, it ends with uh, illness, probably. Angel of the Lord is uh, kind of a reference to um, both the time in Exodus where an angel of the Lord came out and struck all the firstborn of Exodus. There are several moments in the stories of Sam. Samuel and Kings where an angel of the Lord comes out and strikes people. Some people think it might have been an illness. Some people think it was just a miraculous death. We don't really know. Um, But regardless, um, the uh, 185,000 of the Assyrian camp dies. And then even when Sennacherib goes uh, back to his palace in his own kingdom, his own sons kill him. And uh, it's interesting because Two sons kill him, and they must have been executed as a result of this because they're not the sons that get um, put on the throne. It's mm-hmm. a different son altogether that gets put on the throne. So uh, all three of them end up dying, and this new guy, Ershahadon, um, he becomes the king of uh, Assyria. And so we see God's miraculous work at hand, uh, which is a really cool way to end this passage. But we're not done with the story yet. This is kind of the most powerful of the chapters in terms of how God's going to take care of um, of Judah. But Isaiah still has more to say in this story section. And the next couple chapters are a little bit of how um, – Judah is still plagued with problems and still plagued with death, still plagued with sin. And we're going to see in the next couple chapters that even though God has a favor towards Judah, um, there are still some things wrong with the world and wrong with life in general, life and death, and wrong with Hezekiah even. So um, tune in in the next couple weeks to hear how even in the midst of God saving his people, there is still some problems going on. Ashley, do you have anything to conclude this or are you good? Um, I think I'm good. All right. Well, thank you so much guys for tuning in and we will be back in your feed again next week. Bye everyone. Bye-bye.